Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest. April 6th, 2023, the No Mugshot Edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime from New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. And special treat today, Ruth Marcus of The Washington Post is here. Emily's out this week. GabFest stalwart, GabFest outstanding visiting performer in a guest appearance uh, award winner, multiple, multiple Award winner, Ruth Marcus. Hi, Ruth. How are you? No, don't, don't hold back, David. I'm not sure I've ever been described by anyone as a special treat before, but I'll try to live up to that billing. This week on the GapFest, 34 felony counts for Trump, but are they the right ones? Then how the Wisconsin Supreme Court and Chicago mayoral races will shape politics in those two places and across the country. And then the No Labels Group has $70 million in funding and thoughts thoughts dancing in their heads of running a third party presidential candidate in 2024. Is this a Republican trick or a useful uh, tonic for a failing democracy? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. There was fingerprinting. There was no mugshot, but that didn't stop uh, Trump fundraisers, Trump folks from photoshopping him onto a mugshot and then and then scrapping for donations with that image of him in a fake mugshot. But in case you were trapped in a casino over the last few days, you already know the facts. Former President Trump was arraigned in Manhattan on Tuesday, charged with 34 felony counts related to the hush money paid to Stormy Daniels before the 2016 election, money that was laundered through Trump's fixer, Michael Cohen. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg hasn't shown all of his case, but he's indicated that Trump fraudulently created business records to cover up the Cohen payments. And those fraudulent business records were a felony because they were in furtherance of other crimes, possibly federal campaign finance crimes or tax crimes. At its core, this case today is one with allegations like so many of our white collar cases. Allegations that someone lied again and again to protect their interests and evade the laws to which we are all held accountable. As this office has done time and time again, We today uphold our solemn responsibility to ensure that everyone stands equal before the law. No amount of money and no amount of power changes that enduring American principle. So, Ruth, you are uh, you're the legal expert here today. You're not a fan of Trump, I think. But but it seems like you're puzzled by these charges. Why are you and, and other folks skeptical on first blush? It's not because I don't think that Trump did something really scuzzy here, something actually corrupt. This stuff about, oh, there was mixed motive. He didn't want Melania to know about this. Come on, look at the timing. What he did, and it wasn't just with Stormy Daniels. It was also with Karen McDougal, the Playboy model, and the famous doorman with the story about the alleged uh, out-of-wedlock child. What he tried to do in the aftermath of especially of the Access Hollywood tape, was to keep salient information from the American public, which was about to vote him into the presidency, um, or so he didn't actually think, but it turned out that they did. Uh, The question, though, is 
whether this is a crime and specifically whether it's a crime under New York law. And there is where my skepticism arises. Yes, it is wrong and a misdemeanor under New York law to falsify business records. It is only a felony under New York law if the falsification of those business records was in furtherance of another crime. What was that crime? We don't really know. The indictment doesn't say. Apparently in New York, where apparently I'm technically a member of the bar, you don't have to say. But Alvin Bragg at his press conference threw out a bunch of different possibilities. Maybe it's a violation of New York state election law, which makes it illegal to defraud or, and actually that's a misdemeanor, by the way, to uh, defraud the voting public. Uh, Maybe, but it's never been applied in this situation. Maybe it's a violation of federal campaign finance law. Maybe, but we don't know that the other law under New York state law really rises, um, really includes a federal violation. Maybe it's a violation of tax law. This is the one that um, puzzles me actually the most because the violation of tax law would be, I didn't actually, but I was getting ready to file a false tax return. The falsity of this tax return would have been that I said this was income that I paid as part of my corporate expenses when it wasn't income. And so, or Michael Cohen would have done that. And so therefore I would have been paying too much taxes, not too little. That seems like a weird way that you would have defrauded the public. All of this adds up to skepticism. Maybe it's a crime, a felony, maybe it's not, we'll find out. But when you strike at the king uh, and when you strike at the former president, in my view, it should be on the basis of a much uh, stronger case than this. So, John, as we've discussed and everyone else has discussed, this is the first of what could be four criminal cases brought against Trump in the coming months. Just to recapitulate, there's the one in Georgia trying to manipulate the vote in Georgia in 2020. There's the the two investigations being um, done by the by the special counsel in D.C., one about the hiding and withholding information about its classified documents, and the other about possibly trying to overturn the election on January 6th. Why does it matter, do you think, that the, these charges came first? Well, it matters because there are two venues for Trump and his legal problems. There's the, the courthouse, the courtroom, the world of law, reason, and fact, where he's had really bad luck in his recent career. And then there's the public court, um, where he has more, has had more success and certainly a lot more success in his own party. That's not just about his fortunes. It's about the entire American system, which has been um, really crumpled and shredded by having to try to wrestle with him. And that's exacerbated a lot of um, uh, the worst instincts in politics, many of them, much of them, the majority of them in his own party. So to the extent this raises the stakes and doesn't give us the kind of resolution we would like out of the legal process, it causes the conditions for more bad energy to be in the political system. But depending on what we actually learn are the larger crimes that Bragg is attaching his um, felony counts to, you know, it might someday turn out that there is a more solid case in the moment in in the public argument, what was hoped for by some people, um, including me, is that the facts of the case would give us some stability and we'd be able to say, well, he's either made the case, he's proved the case here or he hasn't. But as Ruth nicely outlined in those three larger 
uh, crimes or um, that Trump needs to have committed for this to rise to be a felony, it's all still very much up in the air. Um, there is some appellate law apparently in New York that says all you have to do is plan to thwart um, state activity. This is on the tax question. If you plan to frustrate the state's power to faithfully carry out the law, then that itself is a felony. But that's something that's going to be, you know, maybe not a slam, certainly not a slam dunk. And now we've got to wait basically till December or January for more facts to come in, uh, although Trump's legal team will get discovery soon. So they'll they'll have to know. Right, Ruth, they'll know in discovery what, in fact, Bragg is claiming um, or have a much better understanding in the process of discovery, which starts right now. Yeah, not not the discovery would probably go to the facts that Bragg has amassed, um, which were notably devoid of major new revelations. Um, This has all been exhumed pretty extensively in the Cohen prosecution and other things. I have to say I'm puzzled and really, uh, I think it's not healthy for democracy to have this case proceed on such a languorous uh, path. It's not good for us to be thinking about the next court hearing right as we are getting ready for the Iowa caucuses. That's crazy. I mean, the the whole framing that you guys have both done gets to a question that I've had, which is we've never had a president or ex-president indicted. Nixon probably would have been, but was pardoned uh, in advance. Should the prosecution of an ex-president or a potential presidential candidate have to meet a higher bar so that it doesn't become an easy political weapon for an opposition party. I mean, the claims that Republic Republicans are, have immediately gone to the, this is a political prosecution and it's unif- they are unified around this. That may or may not be true. Um, but it's certainly, it's a, it's a talking point for them. It does suggest that if this is, if this is a box that has now been opened, that it's a box and it's going to be opened again and again and again. And therefore, should there be different standards so that it isn't easy, as easy to open this box? Yes and no. One of the things that is so frustrating and that has been so frustrating in watching Trump basically evade the clutches of the law for so many years now is the way we have set up presidents and to some extent ex-presidents, we'll find out, uh, from the consequences of their actions. Uh, We do not, under Justice Department guidelines, Maybe those are right and maybe those are wrong, but we'll never really get a test of them because the Justice Department won't violate its own guidelines. We do not prosecute or really even indict presidents while they are in office. So Trump, while he was in office, had this not get out of jail free card, but stay out of court free card. So there's a kind of pent up demand when he finally leaves office of, okay, now is the potential point to hold him to account. So on that score, it just can't be right that we should be extra special cautious and extra special withholding of proceeding against a former president uh, after we can't proceed against him, say, with the obstruction of justice, 10 claims, as I recall, that Mueller identified in his report way back when. At the same time, the risks that you mention are uh, completely extant in we do not want to descend to banana republic moments. We do not want prosecutors and especially 
uh, sorry, Yahoo local prosecutors. I'm not putting the Manhattan DA in that basket, but you could have a lot of prosecutors in a lot of places proceeding against former presidents at willy nilly and for partisan reasons. And that would be a very unhealthy development. We've seen it in, let us say, lesser democracies than ours. We don't want to see that. And so you face this tension that's really irreconcilable. And that's why I kind of come down to shoot at the king, better kill him. You want a case that you would have brought against someone else in similar circumstances. There are, of course, no similar circumstances to Trump. And you want a case that is bulletproof because you do not want to open the door to all of these harms, but you don't want to slam the door closed on any prosecution. And that's why my eggs are actually in the Mar-a-Lago basket. The the Mar-a-Lago basket, and uh, which is only getting worse for Trump by various court rulings that have uh, that are um, that have forced his lawyer to testify, and now other aides as well. The, the classified documents case in the classified documents case, yeah. and in the other uh, case, the invest the special counsel is looking into, which is his efforts to overturn the twenty twenty election, which also happened this week. But the question is, whose responsibility is it to maintain? What I think you're you're right about, Ruth, which is if you're going to go after him, go after him. Is that Bragg's should Bragg have uh, put that in his calculation? I think at a local level, uh, he should have, because by not being specific about maybe there's some genius legal reason by uh, which argues for not being specific about the larger crimes that this attaches to to become a felony. Um, But in the short term, what it's done is is retained the ambiguity while in the public sphere, having even never Trumpers like Mitt Romney and others say this is an overreach. So in the court of public opinion, it's not been um, so great that he has been vague about the larger crimes here. I agree with that. And it is Bragg's responsibility. He, uh, to his credit, not in the court papers, but in the news conference afterwards, he did lay out somewhat his theory of the case. And I thought that that was helpful, but not sufficient. As Justice Jackson told us, not the current Justice Jackson, but Justice Robert Jackson in a magnificent speech many decades ago, the prosecutor in American uh, legal system possesses immense power, both federal prosecutors, which is what he was talking about, and local prosecutors. And Justice Jackson talked about the importance of picking the crime and not the target of the crime. And here my worries are that we are talking about the target of the crime. I thought in particular um, the district attorney's fulminations over the importance of accurate legal, uh, accurate corporate records for the people of New York and the financial capital of the world was a little overmuch. True and accurate business records are important everywhere, to be sure. They are all the more important in Manhattan the financial center of the world. That is why we have a history in the Manhattan DA's office of vigorously enforcing white-collar crime. My office, including the talented prosecutors you saw at arraignment earlier today, has charged hundreds of felony falsifying business records. This charge, it can be said, is the bread and butter of our white-collar work. The injury to the people of New York, um, to the extent there was an injury to the people of New York, was not that they have to rely so 
carefully on accurate financial records. It was a different kind of industry. And we know, from, among other things, from the very fascinating, though, problematic book that one of the former prosecutors in that office, Mark Pomerantz, wrote, that prosecutors were scrambling and tearing their hair out and going to the law books to try to find the right basis for a crime here with which to go after Trump. And I have no brief for Trump, but all of you who are out there listening to this and yelling at me, um, please stop, because I, I, nobody wants to see Trump more held to account than I do. But I worry that this is not the right case for that. If it was a tax crime, then there is a larger interest for New York and for business. I mean, you can't you mean lying on your taxes is good? Well, well, first of all, nobody lied on their taxes yet. Second of all, to well, the we don't know that somebody to the extent that somebody lied on their taxes. Well, I think they're t- he talked about the intent. If if Michael Co- if Michael Cohen was planning to say this was income to him on his taxes, all he would have been doing to the people of New York was paying them more money than they were entitled to, not less. I don't think that's the entirety of, I mean, we don't know because it's vague, but I don't think that's the entirety of the tax scheme he's talking we'll about. We'll find out. We don't, we don't yeah, know. We'll find we out. Know. But okay. I mean, but just whether it's, if in fact that's true, then that is in fact something that just because it happened to be for hush money, I mean, it could have been for lunches. I mean, so you claim all these lunches uh, are something else. You're defrauding the tax system. You can't have a, a system of commerce that has people playing by different rules yeah although i mean we have so much evidence that trump is gaming the tax system we already know that that is the case and it, the question is whether this is the case to bring against a former president no, actually, as a criminal prosecution no the question is whether whether what bragg is alleging has a bad impact on what happens in new york whether this is the case or not is a distinct question but cheating on taxes it's not it's not crazy to say cheating on taxes is not a good thing in the in the business capital of the world. Um, let's all right. Let's bring this home, John, quickly. Uh, how, insofar as we we can tell yet, does this seem to be impacting the embryonic presidential campaign on the Republican side? Well, in the short term, it, Bragg has succeeded in rallying the Republican Party around Donald Trump. Even it's even people who have no interest in rallying to Donald Trump's side, including Mitt Romney and Jeb Bush, which is. Um, Quite, you know, quite good for uh, Donald Trump. Having said that, there are a lot of other shoes that could drop in these other cases that are certainly going to drop before this case gets resolved. Um, Probably not going to drop in Trump's favor. So there's a short term rallying on this point. But the larger term problems of Donald Trump and his being an agent of chaos and this being one of a cluster of instances in which he tried to go around uh, various laws, whether he tried to do it in a misdemeanor way or a felony way, doesn't matter. It's a part of the same pattern of behavior. Um, and so in the long term, if Donald Trump and the Republicans party is that suburban women are not voting for them, um, it seems unlikely that a, that a suburban woman would think, you know, I didn't vote for him when he was impeached once. But now that he's been impeached twice and indicted in New York and whatever other indictments are coming, now I'm going to go vote for him. And the, the problem for the Republicans, I guess, if you would, if it's a problem, is if you believe that Trump is that toxic in the general election context, then you have to go find another candidate. Um, and this freezes the ability to find another candidate because the, pe- the position it puts Trump's challengers in is this crazy one in which they say, like Ron DeSantis, I am Donald Trump in all the ways but the chaos. But then because of this case, it forces him to say, 
okay, this chaos you're seeing, it's totally politically motivated by the woke liberals. So you're essentially assigning all the chaos that you were using as a pretext for your campaign to the malfeasance of the other side. So you're saying, well, maybe all this chaos that you're running against when you're running against Donald Trump is really just manufactured chaos by liberals, and therefore, why not have him? So it undermines your case if you're a challenger. Slate Plus members, you get all kinds of goodies for being a member. You get bonus segments on the GabFest. You get bonus segments on other Slate podcasts, full bonus episodes of some Slate podcasts, no ads on Slate podcasts, and a whole lot else. Today's Slate Plus segment here on the GabFest is going to be about the killing of more than a thousand bison in Montana that wandered out of Yellowstone. Is it wanton brutality or a public health necessity? Uh, if you go to slate.com slash GabFest plus, you can become a member today and hear that segment. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame it was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Janet Protasewicz won the most expensive judicial election in world history. She crushed conservative Daniel Kelly for a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, though the race was nominally nonpartisan. The court's ideological balance uh, has just shifted, giving liberal justices four seats when Protasewicz takes office in August. She ran pretty clearly as a liberal and pretty clearly on a platform that she was going to help uh, change reproductive rights laws in Wisconsin. She was going to fight back against gerrymandering that's been pushed by Republican state legislators. Meanwhile, in Chicago, progressive Brandon Johnson will be the next mayor. He had huge teachers union support, but he beat conservative Democrat Paul Vallis, who had pub police union support and ran a law and order campaign. Um, and it was, I think, a surprise to a lot of people that that Vallis, uh, that Vallis couldn't pull that out in a city that's that's had a lot of issues with public safety. John, why is the Protosavitz win such a big deal in Wisconsin? What, why, why, why are people like, oh, this is a, such a profound shift? It's, it's, it's just one seat on a Supreme Court. Right. Well, it shifts for the first time, first time in 15 years, the balance of the Supreme Court in Wisconsin from conservative to liberal. Wisconsin is a state that's not only uh, a crucial swing state for the presidential election um, and has been razor thin and so will matter and be a battleground in 2024 and how the Supreme Court rules, um, both in setting the terms for the election um, in terms of voting rights, um, 
but also how it may rule in anything that it might have to manage after the election. If you're a Democrat, you'd rather that be in the hands of of liberal justices. Um, I think it also matters because in Wisconsin, you have a Democratic a governor and an incredibly Republican legislature. And so there, that throws a lot of questions um, into the uh, uh, into the Supreme Court. I think it's also seen by Democrats as a further test that the salience of abortion as an electoral issue lingers after Roe. Um, there's always been this test, you know, that first there were special elections in which abortion was a big deal for Democrats. Then the question was, would it transfer all the way uh, to the 2022 elections, it did in that case, and now it seems it's also helped Democrats in in this case. Um, also, there's some indication um, that the blue that the purple counties of Wisconsin may be trending um, a little bluer, and and that either it's a combination of Trump plus Roe or something that is tilting Wisconsin um, to be possibly more blue and that you know helps democrats for their long-term chances because there's a, been a theory that you know democrats are are losing their strength in the midwest and so people are are hoping that this is is um is helpful for them so those are some of the reasons i'm one of these people who just believes i think probably all of us agree on this i suspect that judicial elections are terrible that it's a terrible idea to have judicial elections especially when they become ideological, which they intrinsically are going to become in environment we live in, like judicial elections will become ideological and it just creates poison in a system. It creates distrust and it's just a terrible way of picking who decides big questions about Wisconsin law or any state law. On the other hand, when the tools of democracy are being used to subvert democracy in the way that the Wisconsin Republican legislators and the former Republican government governor did, by creating such an unequal distribution of 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 power in the state and and giving state legislators this overwhelming Republican majority, it does require some form of of reaction. It does require some form of fight back, and judicial control is a way to do it. But God, would I like to live in a state? I would like to live in a country where these things are not necessary. But of course, that that never stops. I mean, this was more than quadruple what was spent in the last race and more than triple the national record of what was spent in a um, Supreme Court race. And that's that'll just be the future for the next Supreme Court race in Wisconsin, which is up in 2025, and for other crucial places. It's also worth remembering that there was a benefit to having at least some rational thought dis- detached from ideology, because in Wisconsin, all of the Trump claims about a stolen election were beat back in the Supreme Court because one conservative joined the liberals and knocked them all down. If you have, to the extent that what you talk about continues, you'll just make sure that more and more these candidates are absolutely certainly never going to waver from the party line, uh, and you'll have less instances like, like that. And David, you used the word poison about judicial elections. I could not agree more. Uh, the money here is appalling. The uh, But there's something else that was happening at, in Wisconsin that I think is worth talking about and should give us pause, which is we've seen, not a, to this extent, but certainly high profile, high dollar amount, clear interest group driven judicial races before. We shouldn't have that. But there was an additional thing that happened here, which was the um, clarity, uh, especially from Judge Janet, about 
how she was going to rule on specific cases. She called the legislative maps that I'm talking about rigged. She said a public um, employee restriction on bargaining with public employee unions was unconstitutional. She was very clear about her support for abortion rights. And she tried to draw this narrow, and I think very fuzzy and unconvincing distinction between saying that voters were entitled to know what her values were and then simultaneously insisting that of course she would leave those values at the door when she put on her robes and she would only rule on the basis of the law. I think it's a real conundrum when we have judicial elections, when they clearly have political and ideological implications about whether we want to do the kind of usual kabuki of pretending that we're not, they're not ideological. And of course, I haven't decided anything. And no, I don't know whether I'd vote to overrule Roe or not, or whether we want to say, okay, yeah, here's my laundry list. And here's how I'm going to vote on all of these things. I'm uncomfortable with both. I think that's such a good point. It's funny also that the Protosawitz's ability was allowed by the Republican Party of Minnesota who uh, asked the Supreme Court to allow judicial candidates to have First Amendment protections and created this fig leaf that you're talking about. It's not even a fig leaf, really. And I would just add to Ruth's good point, which is when Eric Holder, the former attorney general, um, participates in the in the state, in part because he's um, the head of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. And as Ruth said, this is a, there's a crucial question of the gerrymandering that takes place in Wisconsin. But when Eric Holder says, oh, you know, I don't know how she would rule in these instances, you have not only these judicial, the system in Wisconsin pretending, even though the other liberal judges walk in arm in arm to the victory party, that somehow they're going to rule just, you know, cleanly balls and strikes on the law, which is kind of hard to take. But then you have a former attorney general saying, oh, no, this is, you know, there's a distinction. There's a wall here between this campaigning clearly and what they'll do on decisions. It just makes the law laughable. And it pro- provides a lot of open room for somebody like Donald Trump who says, look, the whole game is rigged. All this stuff about having, um, you know, views that aren't inf- influenced by politics is totally baloney. So let's stop pretending and let's use the law for our purposes. Let's just turn quickly to Chicago, where where Brandon Johnson will be the next mayor. Job that seems genuinely miserable. It, I've always thought being mayor of New York City would be one of the great jobs of the world. But the mayor of Chicago, it always seems like the mayor of Chicago is just not having a good time in recent years. Ruth, Johnson won despite being tarred as a kind of defund the police ally. And, and Paul Vallis, the person he was running against, lost despite running a kind of very strong public safety campaign uh, and pro-cop campaign at a time when a lot of Chicagoans are very anxious and upset about the the amount of violent crime in the city and the, the sense that it, the city is in a, in a more chaotic and violent state that it's been in a while. Um, so do you think there's a, this is a, is it, it, the question I guess is, is this a playbook? Is there some playbook for Democrats now where they can be the soft on crime candidate and it's, it's going to be okay? Or is this just a very distinct circumstance of an extremely liberal city, uh, that just happened to in this one one time is going to vote for a a more progressive candidate. We don't know yet. We need more data points. There's a a force in here that we haven't mentioned yet. I don't think, which is the Chicago teachers union and it's massive, massive influence in the city and its support for the winning candidate. I do think that if you put some of the current data points together You see, this came up in the Wisconsin race where former Justice Kelly was arguing that Judge Janet would be soft on crime. Uh, 
that didn't win. Abortion was much more salient there. Uh, uh, the crime argument did not get uh, the candidate ballots over the top in Chicago. It has not seemed to be as effective for Republicans. This was obviously a Democrat versus Democrat issue. So we shall see. I do tend to think, though, that I wouldn't overread Chicago here because it's such a unique circumstance, though it is also a not uniquely but particularly um, problematic city crime wise. If I never had to read Joe Lieberman's name again, it would be fine with me. Uh, the doleful former senator and failed vice presidential candidate is now one of the figures at the heart of the no labels movement, along with former Maryland governor, Larry Hogan, former NAACP head, Ben Chavis. Um, all these formers have a huge pile of money now and no labels, which is a kind of complicated thing. I mean, it is sort of a political party. It's sort of a movement. It's, I, I mean, it's very hard to describe what it is, but basically it's an effort to bring America back to a kind of DLC slash Rockefeller Republican world of common sense legislation that is very middle of the road and for which there doesn't seem to be much of a constituency these days. They have these 70, the $70 million from unknown sources, and they have infuriated Democrats recently by taking steps to get themselves a line on the presidential ballot in 2024. They, they insist John, that they're not trying to be spoilers, that they only want to be prepared if both parties nominate unacceptably extreme candidates. They want to be prepared to be able to run a third party alternative in that case. What do you make of it? Are they trying to be spoilers? Are they or are they serving a useful purpose? Like the, the two party system is not so hotsy totsy here. First of all, anytime the word hotsy totsy can be rolled out, I'm I'm in favor of it. So I will say one thing and don't let that uh, cause you to forget to hear what I'm the second thing I'm going to say. I think it's a good thing in general to um, talk about, you know, civility and the benefits of bipartisanship and so forth through the partisan system and argumentation. Um, you get laws that, you know, give a half a loaf to one and half a loaf to the other. And that's the the way it works. It's not necessarily the benefit of now let us all reason together, um, uh, you know, wise men and women in a room. I'm in favor of those things. The second point I would like to make is that the argument for the of the case for no labels is based essentially on either um, ignorance or deceit. And it it's based on two things, two readings of the polls that um that I that are just bonkers. One is it says there are all these there's all these independents out there. Polls show there are lots of independents. Anybody who's been paying attention to polling for many, many, many years knows that while you might have 30% of the country or 40% of the country that says they're independent, when you scratch those independents, they're all leaners. That the true number of independents, people who say, huh, Democrat today, Republican tomorrow, not sure which, oh, I'll go with this one, is teeny. It's teeny. Most people say they're independents, but they vote like a partisan, either a Democrat or a Republican. So to base this, your argument on the idea that there's this huge group of people out there who are looking for this alternative is hokum. The second thing is they say, well, in the ballot test, when you run Biden, Trump, moderate centrist, well, the moderate <laughs> centrist does really well. Well, of course that. they do well, that. you moron. You don't know who the person is. And that's and that's just a crime. There's no way that that's just ignorance. That's deceit. So if you're saying we're going to fix the system with all of this civility and this great participatory, you know, civics 101 behavior, but I'm going to sell you that case on a huge mouthful of deceit, then you're not on the level. 
I used to party with moderate centrists in college, and moderate centrists did so much coke. I'm just telling you, when it comes out, how much coke moderate centrists used to do, it was ridiculous. I, I just wish everybody could see the gesticulation <laughs> of Do- John Dickerson as he talks about yeah. these morons and his arms going in wild I, directions. Uh, may I just add one more point to this? In some of the articles, they say, well, you know, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are being talked about. Um, the national constituency for those two is not big. And it's not going to get bigger th- if they run. Now, you know, they may be wonderful, nice people, but the claims being made for no labels by their can- that their candidate would need to fulfill would be just impossible in America's political. We don't have those kind of political heroes anymore. All right. I'm going to argue with you for a second here. I'm totally annoyed by the no labels label, first of all, which is so try hard. It's so like, oh, this... These old, beautiful, these distressed jeans, no label. Um, Anyway, but be the change you want to see, you know? It's a problem of American politics that the parties are so calcified. They don't even make sense anymore. They don't are not cogent depositories of institutional experience or principle or tradition. So why not try to change it? Why not break up the duopoly? I'd I'd love to argue with you, but we're in agreement. That was my point one. I would like to say that uh, I am all for, say, the Problem Solvers Caucus. I am pro-problem solving. Um, But what No Labels wants to do here and getting on the ballot lines in all 50 states and being able to run a presidential candidate if candidates from the two parties are, quote, unacceptable, um, is not a problem-solving situation. It's a problem-creating situation. What this threatens to do is to... Uh, We've been to this movie before. We saw it in 2000. You have two potential scenarios for spoiler situation. You draw off enough votes from one side that you elect the truly unacceptable candidate, call him Donald Trump, uh, if he gets the party's nomination, which God hope, uh, let's save us from that, please. Uh, um, Or you potentially have a situation where nobody gets 270, neither party candidate gets 270 votes and you throw this to the house. Also a potentially disastrous situation. So um, don't, don't create problems when you're purporting to solve them. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Um, when you're, when you're uh, partying Ruth Marcus with Joe Lieberman at a Seder, maybe uh, what are you going to be chattering to Joe Lieberman about? Well, first, Hog Sameach to Joe Lieberman and all, all out there who celebrate. I am going to be chattering about, and this is what a classic Ruth Marcus late to the game. I've just found this uh, set of reading material. I just took um, our last spring break trip because my daughter's graduating from law school. My mom is 88. She had never been to Ireland. So we all took a spring break trip to Ireland. And I took with me, though did not read while I was in Ireland, uh, a set of Tana French mystery novels um, that were just um, delightful about um, a murder squad in Dublin. And it was really fun to start reading them. I've read the first two. There are six. And um, they're kind of got really magnificent little plot twists, and I couldn't put the first two down. And uh, maybe I might spend my afternoon uh, starting on number three. Inishir is one of maybe the most memorable place I've ever been. I, God, I loved Inishir. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? Mine was my chatter, which was actually my chatter from last week, but I was so 
tired. I couldn't remember it. It was that last um, week was the anniversary of um, Ronald Reagan's shooting in 1981 when we had our show. And what I had not realized until my um, colleague Laura Doan uh, did some research for me was that there is a there is a really, I think, good case to be made that Reagan's assassination and the way it was handled um, and and uh, someone named Carrie Hagan makes this case in the Smithsonian Magazine, that essentially the way it was handled is the first of those instances where the, basically the press kept getting it wrong in real time. In part, that was because they were trying to compete with the very new CNN. Um, but that the original reports about Reagan's shooting were all hugely wrong, not only because of the way the press just reported whatever it heard, but also because the White House was putting out information that he was fine, that he hadn't been hit. Um, so it wasn't just Al Haig who was putting out false information about him being in charge at the White House, but that basically the press just repeatedly kept saying things that had no basis in um, for saying um, and created this basically completely false narrative that took a few days and maybe even longer to unwind. And then we have, you know, um, the decision in the 2000 election that was obviously called wrong because of this hasty pressure to be first, if not, you know, even though not accurate. And then, of course, the reading and misreading of the Bush v. Gore the night it was released. So um, if if you're looking for an initiating event of our modern media landscape, this was an interesting one to put the finger down on. My chatter is... Um sort of a, a Wikipedia adventure I went on. I, there was a really good story in Ruth's Washington Post, I believe. That's where I read it, about how Russia has now built incredible defensive positions across Crimea. So the Crimean Peninsula, this peninsula sort of a, juts out of Ukraine, which was part of Ukraine, which Russia took back, um, seized in 2014. And it's uh, now become fundamental to to Russian identity and and Russia's sense of its of its uh, power in the world and of its territory that it should control the Crimean Peninsula and it's put this terrifying elaborate trench systems all across Crimea Crimea making it really really difficult for any potential Ukrainian invasion to take back what had been Ukrainian territory that is not however what interested me is that I, as I was reading the story I came across this incredible fact which is you know how Crimea sort of this juts out from Ukraine and there's this very narrow peninsula uh, very, very now isthmus uh, that you have to go through to get from Ukraine into the body of Crimea. And it turns out that that is a place called known as the Putrid Sea or the Rotten Sea because it's this disgusting, swampy area that is uh, with filled with very shallow, incredibly salty water that stinks all the time. And so if you want to get from the heart of Ukraine into Crimea, you you drive on this narrow stretch of land kind of surrounded by foul, uh, salinated pools that that are disgusting. And um, it would also be terrible to invade it, be almost impossible to invade it that way because it's such a narrow area and you couldn't get through this swampy area. But I love the idea that there's a part of the world that people are like, oh, we're just going to name it. We're going to call it the Putrid Sea. That's what we're going to call it, the, the, the Rotten Sea. So... Uh, Look for that in your geography textbook. We have gotten great listener chatters, and this one this one is so good. It was going to be a chatter that I was going to do, but listener Zach Marks beat us to it. Um, please 
email us your listener chatter gabfest at slate.com or tweet them to us at, at slate gabfest something that you you will be chattering about but this one is a it's this is like the chatter that that is the venn diagram intersecting john dickerson and david plotz hello gabfesters this is zach marks from emily's hometown of philadelphia with a chatter i hope will pair perfectly with a presidential history themed cocktail for john headlines are filled with the news of donald trump's arrest but did you know this isn't the first time a president has been arrested in 1872, Ulysses S. Grant was arrested during his presidency for speeding in his horse-drawn carriage in Washington, D.C. This story really has legs. The arresting officer, William H. West, was born into slavery, fought in the Civil War, then became one of two black policemen working for the Washington, D.C. Police Department during Reconstruction. West arrested Grant near the intersection of 13th and M for breaking the speed limit, which, for any animal of the horse kind, was eight miles per hour. West had given Grant a warning the day before, and when he caught him, he said the president smiled like a schoolboy who had been caught in a guilty act by his teacher. So West pulls Grant over and says, I am very sorry, Mr. President, to have to do it, for you are the chief of the nation, and I am nothing but a policeman, but duty is duty, sir, and I will have to place you under arrest. West takes Grant to the police station, where Grant's buddies try to get West punished, but Grant won't have it. He not only ensures West is not punished, he stays friends with him and even hires West to solve the crime when two horses are stolen from him later in life. Definitely a different reaction than I'd imagine had it been Trump caught speeding. Love that story. Love it. Grant was probably our greatest horseman. Greatest horseman president. Do we think that's right? Better than Washington? I mean, I don't know. I have no idea. But wasn't Washington supposed to be pretty good? I don't know. I have no idea. No intra, idea, intra, actually. Intra-presidential intra, uh, um Horse Olympics would be awesome. I bet Eisenhower was probably pretty good too. I imagine maybe Washington um, was horrible. Roosevelt, I don't know, but I'm just thinking Grant was legendary. Yeah. Grant was legend, a legendarily an amazing horseman. He, it was the thing he loved above all else. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabfest and tweet chatter to us there. For Ruth Marcus, yay, Ruth Marcus, and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So really sad, difficult story uh, that made its way around. I saw it in the New York Times, but I think it was written about in a lot of places. In Yellowstone, there's a huge herd of bison, huge shaggy uh, animals, and they graze all in Yellowstone. And while they're in Yellowstone, they're protected. But when they venture out of Yellowstone, which they often do if there's not enough grass, the higher elevations of Yellowstone – or there are no there are no fences around Yellowstone, and they end up in Montana. They are subject to Montana law, where they are not protected. And one thing that Montana has decided is that that these bison pose a threat to the cattle industry of Montana. And so, in recent months, there has been a massive bison hunt in Montana. It's also a, a cultural event because the the folks who are doing the hunting belong to tribes that have a historic relationship with the bison. Uh, and with bison hunting, um, more than a thousand bison have been killed out of a herd of about six thousand. Um, and some bison are being rehomed; they're being taken to other places, but mostly they've been killed to protect the cattle of Montana, allegedly from a a, uh, a virus that the bison 
carry endemically called brucellosis, which is very bad when it gets into cattle, although there's no, there have been no cases of bison to cow transmission in Montana. Ruth, you have a relationship to Montana. Wyoming. Wyoming, whatever. <laughs> well, it's a relationship. But it's, it's nearby. I, I, <laughs> you, have a, you have a relationship <laughs> to Montana, which is you are south of it. Um, what did you make of the story? Well, first of all, um, I love this story for many, many reasons. We summer, as they say, with a verb. Um, that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash Plus to become a member today.